right now marks one year exactly since we started the Tanya classes. One year exactly. We haven't done it. We haven't done it every single week. This is our twenty-first class, um, but we are a year in. Twenty-one classes. We're finishing chapter eight tonight, and um, we're really just getting started. We're, you know, all of you are holding on strong to the series, and uh, thanks to you, we are at a beautiful point in Tanya. Once we finish chapter eight. We're done with the heavy lifting. Chapter nine is really, a, 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 we're, we're going to be shifting gears. Chapter nine becomes a lot more personal. It's a whole, it's a whole other section of Tanya, chapter nine. So we're going to learn Tanya. We're going to learn Tanya. Chapter eight. Let me summarize for you where we're holding. Chapter 6 introduced us to the idea that there are spiritual energies in the world. Different things have different levels of, what was the word we're using? Klippa. Klippa is basically the measurement. <laughs> That's the measurement. And there are three categories you have to keep in mind. There is something that has 0% Klippa. 0% Klippa means it's holy. Totally holy. What's holy? A Torah scroll is, is holy. If you speak and you're studying, that speech is holy. All right. Then there are things that have klipa, but it's a pretty neutral klipa. It's a klipa that on the one hand covers over, it, it acts as a shell, as a husk that covers over the divine energy within this object or within this experience. But it's a klipa that is pretty easily penetrable. Uh, we called it klipa snoga, a translucent or a transparent klipa. That is category number two. And that is like this cup of seltzer. This is seltzer. No coffee tonight. We should really get a little bit of l'chaim. Maybe we'll get a little bit of l'chaim later. Um, <laughs> 7.45 p.m., we're learning Tanya. I think it deserves a little Lechaim. Okay, we'll get a Lechaim soon. But um, a cup of water, bottle of seltzer is klipa snoga. It's not holy, but it's not a klipa that totally stifles the divine purpose. You could use klipa snoga out for holiness. You could also use it out for not holiness. It's up to you. But it's a klipa that is neutral and more important, it's tentative. It could go either way. It could become a positive force. It could become a negative force. And then the lower category is what we call the three impure klipos, a very harsh layer of klipa that we as Jews, the Jewish soul does not have the ability to break through this klipa and to make this object or this experience into something holy. And therefore, because we do not have the capability to make this holy, we stay away. In last chapter, chapter seven, we have learned the way we, as humans, as Jews, have the ability to affect klipa. We, we interact by default. We are interacting with klipa snoga an entire day. If we eat and it's kosher, if we do something and it's permissible, there's no problem with it. All this is klipa snoga. 
the car that we drive, the house that we live in, the fuel of our car, unless you've got an electric car. If it's an electric car, then it's the electric fuel, it's the electric energy, the kilowatts, right? Whatever. <laughs> All these resources are not holy. They're klipa, they're klipa snoga. The question is, what are you going to do with that energy? What are you going to do with this object? That was last chapter. We spoke about the, the, the idea that through our interaction with Klippa Snoga, you can make it holier. You could also downgrade it. You could make it, you could make it into a lower level of Klippa. In this chapter, we want to continue on this theme. And this chapter's central theme is how your interaction with Klippa affects you. Till now, we've been learning about how, what effect you could have on Klippa, what effect you have on the world. Now we're learning about the world's effect on you. The world's effect on your soul. And we begin with part one of today's chapter. The first page of chapter eight, which is page 81, although there's no actual page number on this page. This is the page before page 82, right? And what the author is going to share with us is like this. And it's an idea that we started exploring last week's chapter. This cup of water, this cup of seltzer, because it's kosher, I can make it holy. How do I make it holy? Two, there's two things. Number one, use the energy of this seltzer for a holy purpose. So, for example, I am teaching you Torah. I'm learning Torah. I'm engaged in Torah study with the energy of this cup of water. Therefore, I'm using out this cup of water for a holy purpose. This cup of seltzer. And then there's also the idea of having a good intention. Not just using it out for something holy, but having the right intention while you are engaged in that activity. So there's intention, and there's how you use the energy. The author of it says, here's the catch. Let's say it's something forbidden. Let's say, let's say, somebody eats a non-kosher piece of, of steak. It's not kosher. And then with that energy, they go and study Torah. With that energy, they go and do a mitzvah. Let's say while they were eating that non-kosher piece of meat, they even had good intentions. I'll, I'm eating to serve God. The best of intentions and the best usage of the energy. And let's even say, just to thicken the plot, Let's say that the consumer of this non-kosher meat doesn't even know it's not kosher. He thinks it's kosher. You think it's kosher, you have the right intentions, and you use it out for the right purpose. Could you elevate it? And the author ever says, no. <laughs> it doesn't matter. If it's not, if it's from the lower level of klipas, it's, it's tied down, it's stuck, it's bolted down, it's chained down. There's nothing to do about it. Intentions are good, but the facts are facts. <laughs> this is something that we do not have the power to elevate. Let's read inside. Chapter one, part one. So then we, we, we named this chapter Klipa's Effect on the Soul. And well, let's do part one the soul's inability to affect the severe Klipos. All right, let's read. Furthermore, the author says, this is the reason why forbidden foods are labeled with the term isr, that it's tied down. The word isr, we learned in the last chapter, has a double meaning. Isr means prohibition. It's a legal, technical legal term. 
halachic term. It's an isser. It's an isser to light a candle on Shabbos. It's forbidden. It's an isser to eat a cheeseburger, right? But isser legally means forbidden, but literally in Hebrew it means tied down. The author says, because it's the same exact thing. The author explains, let's say someone ate some forbidden food unknowingly. It's forbidden, but he didn't know. He ate it. He thought it was kosher. Let's say he ate it for a divine purpose so that he could serve God with the power derived by eating it. And let's say he actually did so. He didn't just have the intention. He did it. He read from the Torah and prayed, empowered by that meal. Now, this has happened before, that people show up to a wedding, kosher wedding, and you rely on the caterer. It's a good kosher caterer. They serve food. And all of a sudden, the scandal comes out that they actually weren't serving kosher meat. They just had this story in New Jersey, a Chinese restaurant in New Jersey, which had a kosher symbol and everything, was, was serving non-kosher meat. So you could say, look, I'm a religious Jew. It wasn't kosher, but, but I, I didn't mean it. <laughs> I spent the big bucks to buy kosher food, right? Kosher cost a lot more than going to a non-kosher Chinese restaurant. And I even had good intentions. And I even used out all that food that I ate from the Chinese for, for mitzvahs. The author says, but let's continue reading. Even in such a case, the energy derived from that meal never rises and invests itself within the words of Torah and prayer as would the energy derived from a kosher meal. Kosher food could be uplifted through your mitzvah. Non-kosher food cannot. You can never take this energy and this food resources and these food particles and make it holy. It's impossible. It's simply weighed down by the severity, by the thickness of its klipa. And the Atabas says this is because of its state of Isur. It is tied and chained to the domain of the Sitra Achra. Sitra Achra means the other side that's not holy of the three impure cleavers. The Atabas is telling us a very simple message. There are certain rules in life that are simply subjective. They're man-made. Or you could say there are, they're, they're, they exist only on an emotional level. You know, in school, you have this. Or let's say in camp, you have this. In camp, they'll make a boundary. No kid is allowed to step one foot outside of the gate. If you do, you're going to get kicked out of camp. It's a danger. Let me ask you a question. Is there actually anything objectively different between this side of the gate and this side of the gate? No. There's no difference. The ground is exactly the same. It's, it's a man-made thing. <laughs> a camp needs to have fences. We can't have kids roaming out of campgrounds, so we put up a fence. And the kids know where the fence is, where the line is. But, but there's nothing actually qualitatively different from this square foot of land to this square foot of land. There's no difference. It's all man-made. Technically, the camp could go tomorrow and move the fence. So you could think that the Torah laws are subjective laws. They're important. 
God has the right to make rules. But, uh, you know, there's no actual difference between a cow and a pig. There's no actual difference between a cow that's slaughtered correctly and a, and a cow that's not slaughtered correctly. It's rules. They're good rules. God has the right to make the rules, but they're subjective rules. What the altar is telling us is no, there's actually a difference. The rules of Torah are not just rules that God is telling you. God is literally pointing out to you the differences in nature. Something which is of klipa snoga, God says, you could use it. Make it holy. That's your job. Interact with it. Something which is forbidden, you know why it's forbidden? It's not a problem because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's a problem. <laughs> right? Why is, why is poison dangerous? Is it poison because it's dangerous or is it dangerous because it's poison? Or in other words, is it poison because the FDA decided that it's dangerous? Or did the FDA decide it's dangerous because it is actually poison? <laughs> it's a reality. If somebody says, you know, I by mistake took poison, but I didn't mean it. Listen, I don't, I don't care if you meant it or not. <laughs> I don't care how you use the poison once it entered your body. Fact is, this is bad. This is toxic. This is hurting you. The author of it says, when we engage in something which is of a low-level klipa, it's a reality. This is not a subjective or an emotional or a man-made construct. This is a reality. Something which is of a klipa snoga, we can make holy. Something which is from the low-level klipa, we're out of luck. And the author is going to share with us, it's going to come up a bit later in the chapter, Not only could you not elevate it to holiness, but it ends up hurting you. It damages your soul. It's toxic. It's negative. It's not healthy for a Jew. Let's continue reading. The Altarbus says, this fact, this objective nature of the low-level people is true even about the rabbinic decrees. And I don't want to get too much into this. But in the Torah, in Jewish, in the Jewish religion, there are two categories of mitzvahs. There are the things that come straight from the Torah, and then there are the things that the rabbis have legislated. And if you joined last summer, not this, not this past summer, a year before that, we did a course in the summer titled Judaism Decoded. And we really went into depth on this whole topic of uh, rabbinic legislation. And if you want... I can send you the video of that class. Very, very important. Very important idea. And the author says, this is true even when it comes to the rabbinic decrees. If the rabbis say something is forbidden, the rabbis recoded nature. And that means that that object from now and on is from a low-level klipa that we can never make holy. Let's read that. Bottom of, of the page. This applies even in the case of a food which is forbidden by rabbinic decree. Rabbinic decrees are just as serious as biblical decrees. For, why is this? And this is because the author quotes a quote from the Talmud. The instructions of the scribes are to be taken even more seriously than the instruction of the Torah. In Judaism, a rabbinic decree is not a low-level decree. It has the exact same severity, spiritually as well, as a biblical decree. Okay. Which means like this, the author is saying, something which is of klipa snoga, you can make holy. Something which is 
low-level klipa, from the three totally impure klipos, there's nothing you could do to make that holy. So the altar then now says something which is unbelievably fascinating. The next few lines of Tanya, I personally think are unbelievable lines, but it's very cryptic. The altar says it quite rapidly, quite quickly, and quite cryptically. So I want to first explain to you. Let's go through it again. There are three categories here. There's holy, there's klipas noga, right, the neutral category, and then there's the low-level klipa, the totally impure klipos. Let's talk about you. What are you made out of? Which of these three categories do you possess naturally? Let's think about it. We have a godly soul and we have an animal soul. Your godly soul, which category is it? Holy, klipa snoga, or totally impure? What's your godly soul? Holy. Godly soul is holy. Okay. So holiness is native to you. That's natural for you. Your animal soul, a Jew's animal soul, what category is that? Klipa snoga or low-level klipa? Klipa snoga. Klipa snoga. The author basically says, think about it. Low-level klipa is not native to your identity. It's not natural. You're, you're not born with it. So the author of it asks a simple question. The author of it doesn't ask the question, but the author of it implies the question. You know, in nature, philosophy speaks a lot about this. There's a rule in philosophy. I'm talking about, you know, ancient philosophy, <laughs> not modern day pop philosophy. I mean, like, you know, good old uh, Greek philosophy and, uh, and, 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 and uh, the, you know, the Muslim philosophy. There's a rule in ancient philosophy that everything follows its nature. Everything in nature follows its nature. So a sheep, sheep eat grass. Sheep don't eat meat. Sheep don't eat meat. Even if you put an entire dead, dead, uh, dead carcass in front of it, it's not going to eat meat. You know why? It's not its nature. A lion eats meat and doesn't eat grass. <laughs> It's not that it doesn't have grass. There's grass all over, right? The, the open... Uh... <laughs> Lions, by nature, need meat. So they go after meat. Why? Because it's within their own nature. The author says, let's think about it. For a Jew to pursue holiness, that's natural. That's natural. Because we have something holy within us. We have a holy soul. For a Jew to want klipasnoga, what's klipasnoga? To eat breakfast, to want to go to sleep. Right? Basic instincts of survival. That's natural because we have an animal soul, which is klipasnoga. The author says, where does it come from? Where does the desire to do something that is forbidden? Where does a Jew get that desire from? Seemingly, it's not native to the Jew. A Jew, when you were born, you did not have any low-level klipa within you. So what makes you gravitate to it? You understand the question? The author says, seemingly, a Jew should never have a desire and should never feel any connection with anything that is forbidden. Because there's nothing naturally within you of that low-level people. The author says something unbelievable. It's a very powerful statement. It's a crazy statement. 
it's one of those times in Tanya where you say, this is radical stuff. This is radical. You know, only somebody like the Alter Rebbe could say this. And the real truth is the Alter Rebbe is not the originator of this idea. The idea comes from the Zohar, from Kabbalah. But the Alter Rebbe, I think, frames it in a very uh, radical way. The Alter Rebbe says it's true. For a Jew to desire something holy is natural. For a Jew to desire something klipas nova, again, which means for you to eat breakfast. For you to wake up in the morning and say, I'm hungry, that's Jewish. That's natural to you. For a Jew to want to eat not kosher, is not natural to you, and you're not born with that desire. It is not your nature. You were not born that way. When you emerged from your mother's womb, you had you did not have it within you to desire anything that is forbidden by the Torah. The Alter Rebbe says, you know why we do desire such things which are forbidden? It's by osmosis. It's an external force. It's not natural. It's our environment that a little bit corrupted us <laughs> and made us leave our natural state and to want things that are not even part of our nature. You know, psychology speaks about this. You know, people, I'm going to use the word demons, right? And I don't mean demons like, you know, monsters with horns and I don't know, you know. I mean like inner demons. They always speak about the concept of people have their inner demons that they have to struggle with. So in psychology, there's two types of demons. There's inner demons, which means problems that you face that are, that are you know, embedded in your own psyche, embedded in your own heart and soul, and you need to work through those challenges. And then there are some demons that people face that are not their own demons. <laughs> They're only dealing with these challenges because of their environment. Naturally, they would never want to do these things. Naturally, they would never gravitate to these types of things. Think about a teenage kid who gravitated to a life of crime. Most kids don't naturally gravitate to a life of crime. It's their environment. It's their environment. It's, it's very tragic. They were a bad environment. They were in the inner city. They had bad friends and bad influences. It's a bad influence. They're fighting a demon that's not theirs. Why is a teenage kid doing this? There's no reason. There's no reason. So the author of it says something unbelievable. That part of understanding Klippa, once you understand Klippa, you realize that a Jew naturally from the inside has no relationship to sin, has no relation to anything that's forbidden. If a Jew wants something that's not kosher, I'm not just talking about kosher food, I'm about anything. You should know it's not the real them. It's not the real them. It's an external force. It's an external influence that is hijacking their system. <laughs> it's a learned trait. It's a learned negative trait. And the author of it therefore says something very fascinating. It could be you're familiar with the term called Yetzer Hara. Yetzer Hara is a very classical Jewish term, which means the evil inclination. People have an evil inclination or the inclination to do bad. The inclination to make bad choices. So generally speaking, conventional wisdom says that a person has one evil inclination. You have one. The ultimate says, no, you have two evil inclinations. One evil inclination is a, is a natural native evil inclination that you're born with. That evil inclination is looking for klipas noga. It's self-serving, it's selfish, makes bad choices, 
right? It's not a good inclination. It's an evil inclination. It's a bad inclination. But it is gravitating to Klipas Noga. And the author says there's another Yitzhahara. There's another evil inclination, which is separate. And this is a foreign Yitzhahara. This is not natural to you. It's an outside influence that you simply, that, 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 that leached onto you through your experience of simply living life in a world which is full of uh, klipa, <laughs> in a materialistic world, in a crass world, in a world where there are not the best influences all around. Right? Simply, you know, you're, you're exposed to the world and, 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 and all of a sudden you have an influence, an evil inclination that pushes you to, to, the, to low level klipa. But the optimist says you have to realize that force, that inner desire, that craving for something that is of a low level klipa is not natural to you. It's not native to you. You weren't born with it. Such an interesting concept. So let's read this inside and then, uh, then we'll maybe discuss a little bit. And dear friends, I just want to share with you, it's 8.08. Tonight we're going to be going a few minutes over time. Hopefully not long, hopefully not long, but I want to finish the chapter. So uh, don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get a move on it. But um, just, uh, just forewarning you. Let's read. All right, towards the top of page 82. Forbidden desires are not native to a Jew. The ultimate says, therefore, once you understand that the low-level klipa, something that's forbidden, can never become holy, the ultimate says, this teaches us the gates are harad, the evil inclination, and the capacity to crave for forbidden things must originate from an external influence. It can't be your natural desire for temptation. And the author says, quoting Kabbalah, it's a non-Jewish demon. <laughs> this is a Yetzirah that non-Jews have. As a Jew, you do not possess this Yetzirah naturally. It is a Yetzirah of the other peoples of the world whose souls are of the three impure klipos. You shouldn't have the Yetzirah. Other people do, not you. <laughs> you pick it up simply by living in this world, which is a world which is dominated by klipa, but it's not natural. And the author says, not so the Yetzirah and the capacity to crave for permissible things, which are just to satisfy your craving. If you desire simply kosher things, simply for yourself, that's something else. The Atrebus says that is one of the Jewish demons that's natural to you, native to a Jew's animal soul. A Jewish Yetzirah Hara is only able to desire such things because they are of Klipas Noga and will be able to return to holiness afterward, as explained earlier. Native to a Jew is only something that could be uplifted to holiness because that's who you are. You are Klipas Noga. So therefore you gravitate to Klipas Noga. Very interesting concept. Okay, with this, we move into part two of the chapter. But any questions, by the way? Any questions before we move on? All right, part two. Um, okay. Part two is a very, it's very interesting that the author of it goes here. Another little bit of like a dark corner of Tanya. The author says, you know, based on what we're saying, that through your consumption with klipa, uh, you get affected by klipa. That means, like, this is what we're learning about, right? The idea that you that you live in the world and all of a sudden 
klipa, which you don't even possess naturally, starts clinging onto you and starts, starts soiling you and starts messing around with who you are. The Altarist says this explains the whole concept that a soul, when it lives, you know, our soul, when it lives through physical lifetime, you know, we live for 120 years, right? That's a Jewish, that's a Jewish lifespan, right? 120 years. So all of you are very young people. You gotta get a very young crowd of here. Everybody's got decades and decades left to their lives, right? <laughs> We're all different ages, but we got uh, till 120, God willing to go. Lots of time to do mitzvahs, and to learn, and to study Tanya once and twice and three times. Right, with health and with joy, as we say in Yiddish. But a soul gets very dirtied when it, um, as it lives life, simply, simply living life. Because unless you're a holy person who is always making everything holy and every moment holy, everything holy, chances are that we have introduced a lot of klipa into our system. And at a certain point, it starts um, contaminating who we are. It starts hurting the quality of our soul. And the altar is going to tell us, you know, this is, this is why. This, this all ties in with the idea of a concept which is called hell. Hell and purgatory. <laughs> okay, let's talk about this for a moment. Hell has gotten a very bad rap. It's not such a bad place. It's a bad place. <laughs> no, it's not the nicest place. But whatever, whatever imagery you have of hell, throw it out the window. Throw it out the window. There's a time for punishment, and there's fires, and there's demons and devils with pitchforks to torment your soul. No, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's calm down. Unfortunately, the concept of heaven and hell is one of the concepts that Christianity robbed from the Jewish people and corrupted it corrupted it, defiled it, twisted it. It's horrible. Unfortunately, today in pop culture, including in the Jewish community, the Christian version of heaven and hell is what people think of when they hear the word hell. It's not what it is. It's not what it is. I want to share with you what hell is. Hell is not a punishment. All right? Hell is not a punishment. Hell is a very natural process that every single soul goes through to rehabilitate that soul and allow it to integrate into a more spiritual world. Because our souls, simply by living in a physical world, in a materialistic world, and in a world full of klipa, lost a lot of its spiritual sensitivity. It didn't lose it. It still has it, but it, uh, it's covered over by a lot of dirt. <laughs> so it's like in a washing machine. You got to take something that's very, very dirty. And you got to wash it and beat it and clean it then once and twice and twist and, you know, and, and tumble it. That's what happens in hell. Hell is simply the soul's washing machine. Car wash for the soul. If the car wash sounds like a nice idea, then hell is a good idea. It does the same thing. Our souls go into hell looking pretty dirty, needing a lot of help, and it emerges looking beautiful, pristine, fresh, 
all polished, ready to go. And then the soul could appreciate life in a more spiritual reality. So hell is really the transition from physical life to spiritual life. Does that make sense? So the author says, hell is really part of this whole conversation of klipa. Klipa is something that we interact with, that we intake, we eat, we are taking klipa into us. And then there's going to be a time where you have to try to get rid of it. How does that sound? Sounds right? Without, no, but just by the way, without hell, you, without hell, heaven would be a very frustrating experience because we would walk into experience that we wouldn't even appreciate. So hell makes us acclimated to a, the, the spiritual lifestyle that our souls uh, experience in, in, in heaven. So the story is told, play a little story that I see somebody has a question. So the story is told of a, uh, it's, it's an old Jewish story which is like a parable, it's a fable, it's not an actual story. Uh, but it brings up the idea that a soul needs kind of this rehabilitation and this training process and this transition uh, between earth and, and heaven. So the story goes that there was once a wagon driver, but this guy was a very thick person. <laughs> he was a bore. He, was, uh, he wasn't a, uh, he, he didn't have any um, refinement to him. He, he never did anything. He never did any mitzvahs. He was a no good nick. He was a real ruffian. But he once saved a person's life. So he went up to heaven and he says, look, he said, look, you're not the greatest guy out there, but you saved a life. You saved a life. You deserve to go to heaven. So he said, all right, sounds wonderful. They showed him into heaven. He comes out an hour later. He says, guys, this is boring. This is boring. Give me something that I could enjoy. This heaven, I don't know, a bunch of rabbis, a bunch of righteous people sitting around and enjoying spiritual bliss. I don't know. I don't, I don't speak this language. Help me out over here. All right. So the heavenly angels are trying to figure out how to get this guy comfortable. Nothing, nothing they offered him speaks to him. So he says, you know what? He says, so, th so they, the angel said, you know what? We're not coming up with any good ideas. Maybe you have a good idea. What would you want? What do you want your heaven to be? He said, you want to know what my dream is? I want six strong horses. I want a wagon that is strong and thick and the wheels will never break. That's all I want. That's my greatest pleasure in life. Give me six strong horses and a strong wagon and I'm good to go. They said, really? That's what you want? He said, that's what I want. And the story goes that till today, he's still driving on an infinite road in heaven with six strong horses and a wagon. <laughs> What's the idea of the story? <laughs> you know, if you go to heaven and you don't have hell, then all you want is to have six horses. <laughs> You're so stuck in your own way of thinking. You can't realize there's a greater world out there. <laughs> there's a joke. There's a joke. And the joke relies on a, on a stereotype, on a Jewish stereotype. If you'll go to Brooklyn, every single shul has beggars. And it becomes like a phenomenon. People are beggars for decades. They never even dreamt of having another job. This becomes life for them. You know, I'm a beggar. I'm sure they didn't, you know, they only became a beggar because they fell on hard times. They had to beg for money. But at a certain point, and, you know, the Jewish community in New York is very charitable. I was recently in New York, and I went to a shul in Borough Park. Anybody, any of you have been to Borough Park? Borough Park is a cultural phenomenon, a piece of Jewish American history. Borough Park. It's a place where Jews have been living for decades and decades. They came straight from uh, straight from Europe and developed Borough Park, a section of Brooklyn, into a Jewish community. 
So they have a shul which is open 24 seven. It's called Shomer Shabbos Shul. It's multi-story shul. You can catch a minion at any time of day. There's like 20 different entrances to the building. It's a maze of a building. And it's not like there's like one rabbi. It's a shul for the people. There's hundreds of people every single day that walk through there and daven. It's an endless stream. So I went there this morning. When was it? A few months ago. I, I flew in with my, with my son Mendel to New York. And I went to daven at the Shomer Shabbos. We caught a minion there for the morning. You have beggars that walk in. And it was an unbelievable sight. I, I didn't do this. <laughs> but in New York, this is what Jews do. Every single beggar gets at least a dollar bill. Which means if you're going to daven in the morning, show up with 50 single dollar bills and expect to come home with none. Not one day a week, but six days a week. And not only the morning minion, but evening for Mincha and Myra. And so natural. So, you, don't, you don't ask a beggar, what do you do? What do you need it for? You're going to use it up. It's just such a, such a charitable... Okay. So this is the story. You ready for the joke? This is all the setup to the joke. The joke is like this. A bunch of beggars, a bunch of synagogue beggars are sitting around one day and having a discussion. What would you do if you won the lottery? So one guy says, if I won the lottery, I'll take a week off from begging. I'll go to Florida, I'll go to Hawaii, I'll have a week where I won't have to work so hard. Everybody's giving their own version of what they would do if they would win the lottery. And one guy says, eh, all of you are a bunch, are, are a bunch of stupid idiots. None of you have good ideas. I'll tell you what I would do if I won the lottery. I won the lottery, I would hire a private security firm. And I would post guards 24-7 at every single door of the synagogue. And they would not allow a single beggar to enter the synagogue besides me. And that I could be the only beggar for the rest of my life in this synagogue. Wouldn't that be amazing? So we listen to the story and it's laughable and it's tragic. <laughs> All you can think, you know, you're so stuck in the begging mindset. You don't realize there's a great a life to live out there. Everything's about begging. <laughs> So that's what that, that that you know when our souls go to heaven, that's we all suffer from that as well. So we need hell, and hell is not just a place where there's fires, and it, hell is a process where they look at you and they see what type of service do you need, what type of detailing do you need, like a car wash, right? <laughs> Does your body need any help? Does your soul need any help? What type of help? And it goes through a process. You could be in hell for as little as a week, as little as a day. You could be in hell for as long as 12 months. More than 12, nobody needs hell for longer than 12 months. Even 12 months, that's a very long, that's a very long car washing service. But some people may need it for three months, four months. Depends, you know, it's a very, you have to understand that it's a, it's a very natural process. It's just simply, we take a soul and there's, a, there's some type of process up there, which simply helps out your soul. Okay, let's read. So this is part two of the, of the chapter which we call soul detoxification. The alchemist says, yet nevertheless, before a klipa snoga experience reverts to holiness, it is sitra achra and klipa. We spoke about this in the last chapter. When you engage, let's say in eating, something kosher, if you don't have intention at the moment, then it, it, it remains klipa. And it even goes down into a lower level klipa because you're using it out for selfish purposes, for pleasurable purposes. 
but you could make it, you could you, later on, you could lift it back up to holiness. But at the time, it's Klippa. And the altar says, oh, there we have it. Which means even when you eat kosher food, if you let it go into you and you don't make it holy right away, you're introducing Klippa into your system, into your body, and into your soul. So the altar says like this. And even then, after it has reverted to holiness, that episode of crave-driven crave eating and that food has left its mark clinging to the body. It left a stain on your body. That's because there's always something from any food or drink that immediately becomes metabolized as an integral part of your flesh and blood. And the klipa energy as well assimilates into the blood. If you bring klipa into your system through eating, right away that klipa enters into you. And um, that's unnatural for you. It's unhealthy. And the Yatravah says, this is why the body requires the pain that comes after burial. This is one process of hell, we'll call it, that happens. There's a pain that happens to the body after burial. This pain cleanses the body and purifies it of the impurity, or page 83, it received in benefiting from this world and, it, and its pleasures that are of Klippas Noga and Jewish demons. Right? So there has to be a certain painful process. The point is not pain. The point is it's a process. It's uncomfortable. But if you eat, and you've eaten not for the, even if you've only eaten kosher, but if you've ever eaten and the intention wasn't holy, this is that leaves a stain on you internally. And there's going to have to be a process you know, after 120 that deals with it. Unless, and the author says, unless we're one of those people who never had any benefit from this world all his life, like Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Rabbeinu HaKadosh, which means our holy Rabbi, our holy, our holy teacher, was the one who compiled and redacted the Mishnah. The Tama tells us he was a very, very wealthy man. He lived in Tveria, in Tiberias, in Israel, northern Israel. Very, very wealthy man. When he was on his deathbed, he, he picked up his fingers and said, God, you know that I've never benefited from anything in this world for selfish motivations, even with my smallest pinky. Everything I did was to serve you and to live my purpose in life and to be a holy person. So Rabbeinu HaKadosh, even though he was so wealthy, uh, he didn't need any cleansing of the body. <laughs> His entire life experience was good and holy. He never interacted with Klippa. And we can aspire to this, at least on a little bit. We're not going to be holy like Rabbeinu HaKadosh, like Rabbi Huda Hanasi, but a little bit we can do. Okay. The author continues. In the case of empty chatter that is spoken in a permissible manner, let's now give another example. Let's do speech. Speech, which is kosher, right? Permissible speech. Empty chatter. People who just say, you know, just speak... Uh, frivolous and nonsensical talk. And it's done permissibly, for example, by an uneducated person who cannot study Torah. If you're educated, if you could study Torah, then speaking idle chatter is a sin because you could be studying. So then it comes forbidden. But if you're such a person who simply cannot study, then your idle chatter is permissible. It's kosher. So the optimist says, even though in this case, the empty chatter was not a sin, yeah, but it still leaves a mark. His soul, now, now, now it affects the soul. The soul, not, not his body. 
needs to be purified of this kalipa through the process of, of kaf hakela. Kaf hakela means like a slinging process. Don't ask me to try to explain this to you, which is basically this type of mental experience or like a psychological experience of being thrown back and forth between the bliss of the heavenly garden of Eden and the foolishness of this world as described in the Zohar, Bishalach, page 59. That's another thing. This there's something called kafakela, the slinging process, and it's it's painful for the soul, but this part of its cathartic, uh, you know, uh, rehabilitation, and it helps the soul rehabilitate and cleanse itself from from the kleep experiences. Okay, but now the author says, till now we're talking about permitted klipa, klipa that comes from klipas noga. What about if we do something which is forbidden, which is lower level klipa? The author says, okay, then then you need a little bit of a more severe, a little bit of a you have to up the uh, up the up a notch in your cleansing process. The altar says, "But what about forbidden talk? Not permissible. Let's say it's forbidden talk, such as words of scorn or it's harmful gossip, was called lashon hara, evil talk, slander, and the like." So the altar says, "These are all of the three impure klipos, and in this case, the slinging process alone is not sufficient to purify and detoxify the soul from its impurity. It has to descend to Gehenna." Now it has to really go into full Gehenna mode. It has to go into, into, into hell, into purgatory. And again, I want to stress again, hell is not a, a, a bad place where God gets to punish you and it's divine retribution or devils get to, 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 to berate you. It's a process that is very purposeful simply for healing the soul, allowing the soul to purify itself. Okay. Let's continue reading. The same with someone who is capable of engaging in Torah but chooses to engage in empty chatter instead. You could study. Oh, let's say somebody who could study, but wastes his time. Yathar says, the slinging process alone can't help his soul to be cleaned and purified. In such an instance, there are serious punishments prescribed specifically for time wasted from Torah. You should know wasting Torah is one of the worst things we could be doing. It's, so, it's very interesting because if you would ask if you would take a survey of American Jews, what are the top 10 sins? I doubt not studying Torah is one of the big sins. But you know, in Judaism, not wasting time from studying Torah is a very severe sin. There are special, you need a special level of hell just to deal with that sin, of wasting time from studying Torah. <laughs> and uh, these punishments for wasting time from studying Torah, this is aside from the standard punishment in the Gehenna of snow, for failure to perform any mitzvah out of laziness, as explained elsewhere. So in Kabbalah, it speaks about the idea there's a, there's a hell of fire and there's a hell of snow. Hell of fire is what cleanses a soul from the sins that they have done out of passion, out of fiery passion, out of a lust and out of an excitement, out of an emotional fire. Then there's the hell of, of snow. Hell of snow is what heals the soul from the opposite, from its coldness, from its apathy, from its carelessness, from its laziness, right? Different, uh, different treatments for different problems. The same is true. Let's continue. Let's let's conclude the section. The same is true for one who engages in studies which are outside of Torah. If you study secular studies, the author says, according to the laws of Torah study, this studying secular stuff, anything else falls into the same category as empty chatter 
as far as the sin of wasting time from Torah is concerned. Every Jew has a mitzvah to study Torah every available minute. So if you could study Torah and instead you read, I don't know what, a book of astronomy. From the perspective of Jewish law, you're wasting time. That's a sin. Okay. You know, I, I want to tell you, in Hasidus, Hasidus never speaks about the concept of heaven and hell. You know why? It's a bad motivation. Hasidus is there to uplift a Jew. Hasidus is there to open up the horizons, expand the horizons of a Jew's appreciation for his or her own soul, for the connection with God that we are capable of. Skier tactics like hell is simply not something that Hasidus focuses on. So the altar doesn't, is not speaking about hell over here because he wants to kind of scare us. The altar is merely bringing it in as it fits within a primer about klipa. But this is really the only time in Tanya that you'll ever bump into this negative topic. It's really a negative topic and we don't like dwelling on it. It's not healthy. It's not healthy to, to be too, too, uh, too concerned about hell. Even though it's not as bad of a topic as the Christians make it, but nonetheless, it's... It's not a joyous. It's not a joyous concept. It's not. It's not what should be motivating our Yiddishkeit. It's not what should be motivating our connection with God, our development. Okay, I, I, give me a few more minutes. We're going to conclude the chapter. I have a, a small little shtickle left. A small little section left. All right. The Alchemist says like this. There's one more dynamics in Klipa that we have to know about before we are ready to wrap up this concept. We spoke about Klipa and food. There could be holy food. There could be klipa snoga food. There could be low-level klipa, which is outright dangerous, outright unhealthy. We spoke about speech. There could be holy speech. There could be klipa snoga speech, which is neutral speech, and there could be forbidden speech. The Ottoman now says the same exact thing is true when it comes to study, to intellectual pursuits, to knowledge. There is holy knowledge. There is klipa snoga knowledge, neutral knowledge, and there is forbidden knowledge. Holy knowledge is like Torah. You study Torah. This is food for the soul. You're studying holy things. What's klipas noga? What's neutral knowledge? It's klipa, but it's like redeemable. It could be used by a Jew. What do you think? What would be neutral knowledge, neutral studies? What do you say? What field of study would you say is neutral? What do you say, Polina? Can't unmute. <laughs> like okay, Gail, there you go. Well, like medicine. Something we do for a job. Medicine. What do you say? What do you say, uh, Polina? Something we do for a job. It's oh, you're learning. You're learning how to build a building. You're becoming a contractor, so you learn the the uh, you learn coding for contracting. Right? Yeah, you know, you're learning medicine, you read a diet book, astronomy, I don't know, you know, anything, you know, it's, it's, it's no harm done, right? Forbidden knowledge is anything that is like part of idolatry, religions and philosophies that involve heretical or blasphemous or idolatrous beliefs, that's, that's, that's outright bad knowledge. There's a lot of neutral knowledge. So the author says like this, you have to know Knowledge has the exact same rules about klipa that we've spoken about till now. There's neutral knowledge, klipa snoga knowledge, like math, like geography, like astronomy, like medicine. These are all neutral fields of study. 
But the, the rabbi says, listen, it's not enough that it's neutral. You have to use it for a holy purpose. And if not, then it's negative. Same rules apply. For a Jew, it's not enough that it's neutral. It's not enough that it's kosher. It has to be used for a holy purpose. And if not, it is destructive. And the author says something very powerful. The author says there's something you have to know specifically about knowledge, which is most klipas noga that we interact with doesn't affect the mind. It maybe affects our body. It maybe affects our emotions. It doesn't affect our intellect. Studying, the author says, is a very powerful tool. We are affecting the mind. And the mind is a very delicate thing. Our mind changes our attitudes, changes our worldview. Don't play around with the mind. The author says you have to be especially careful when it comes to the klipas noga of knowledge, of study, of secular studies. There is a way to engage in secular studies, but it has to be done the right way. And if not, it plays around with the mind and it could really compromise the inherent holiness that our godly soul has with its intellect. Let's read. We're on page 84, part three, intellectual klipa. The author says also there's an additional factor that makes secular wisdom even more contaminating for the soul than empty chatter, right? If you speak, and if you just speak gossip, and if you're just playing around, that, right, that's, that's klipa. But secular wisdom, the engagement in secular studies, can be even more damaging for the purity of the soul. Why? Because the author says the latter, empty chatter, only influences and contaminates the emotional attributes of the divine soul. It only hurts you emotionally. Right? The, the author says the impurity of the klipas noga in empty chatter comes from the negative element of ear that is within the animal soul, as described earlier. The animal soul has four negative elements, four unholy elements. Fire, ear, water, and earth. Empty chatter comes from ear. It therefore contaminates the divine soul's corresponding emotions that emerge out of the holy element, out of the holy element of ear. But that only hurts you on the emotional level. But the altruist says, but empty chatter do not affect, however, the intellectual faculties of Chachma, Bina, and Das, of the divine soul. Because they are, empty chatter is, after all, just foolish, empty words that even fools and, and ignoramuses could speak. So this is not intellectual here. It doesn't affect the mind. But the author says, not so with secular studies. Secular studies, they envelop the Chachma, Bina, and Das of the divine soul and contaminate them with the impurity of klipas noga that is within them. If it's not holy, then there's klipas noga there. And if you don't use it out properly, you are introducing klipas noga to the mind. And you got to be very careful when it comes to the mind. You know, we see this today. You could say, what's, what could be wrong with, with math, with medicine, with science? You want to know something? We've lived through it. Not us personally, but in, in recent history. Recent history has been testament to the greatest of secular wisdom. 
being abused, being used and abused for the worst things, for the worst crimes, to murder millions. There you have it. Medicine could be used as a very, as a very dangerous tool. Science could be used as dangerous, but it has to be used properly or else it is very dangerous. And even today, we're living in a time where we're giving kids in, in, in high school, in college, we're dumping information on them. Is it making them better people? You know, studying without purpose is very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Today, the youth are so confused. They're broken inside. They're, they're, it's making them into worse people. Studying without purpose is a very big problem. The author is saying, secular studies are neutral, but neutral is not good enough. If it's not done with a holy, purposeful purpose, you're in trouble. And the author of it says over here, a little bit of a Kabbalistic insight, secular wisdom fell from the background of sacred wisdom into Klippus Noga when the primal containment of light was shattered before the world's creation as is known to those who study the hidden wisdom. All right. There's a big concept in Kabbalah about the broken vessels where holy energy fell into the klipa energy. And uh, that's what secular wisdom has. Holy wisdom that fell into klipa snoga. All right. This is a Kabbalistic concept that I think is beyond us for right now. All right. <laughs> but the author says, right? The author is saying, you got to be very careful when it comes to klipa snoga of neutral secular wisdom. We're not talking here about, about dangerous wisdom. It's basic secular wisdom. Nothing serious. we got to be careful, the author says. The author says, but there's a way to use it purposefully. There's a way to do it in a holy way. These are the exceptions. These are the ways that it is permitted and okay and holy for a Jew to engage in secular studies. Two, two exceptions. The author says the exception is when you make these studies a tool, meaning a means to earn a good living so that you can serve God. If you study medicine to be a doctor, and with your job as a doctor, you make money. And then you're able to live and serve God and do mitzvahs as a Jew because you have a stable income. That's called engaging in secular studies in a way that uses it for a higher purpose. Or the other rule is, the other exception is, or if you know how to use them for the service of God and for his Torah. If you know how to study secular studies, but it's no way that is using it out for your connection with God, then that's good. But this is a little bit more of a difficult thing to know how to do. And this was the rationale of Maimonides and Achmanides of blessed memory and their colleagues who engage in these studies. Maimonides and Achmanides are two of the greatest uh, sages in Jewish history who have been very involved in secular studies of the time, medicine and science and philosophy. And they knew how to use this out in a way that they, they brought out the holiness in these studies. But if you don't know how to use it out to make it holy, the author says, uh, better, better stay away. That's chapter eight. You know, dear friends, with this, we conclude the whole concept of, of klipa, of holiness. But uh, I, I want to, and we're, we're really wrapping up this whole subject now. Chapter nine, we are done talking about the whole concept of klipa. But I just want to share with you a closing remark, which I think is very important. Why is the altar, why did the altar get into this whole idea of klipa, of holiness, of the energies we can make things holy? The Alter Rebbe taught us about our two souls. We have a godly soul and an animal soul. And the Alter Rebbe, by teaching us all about Klippa, is impressing upon us such an important concept. 
You know, most people think that the struggle of life is between being good and bad, right? Moral or immoral, decent or indecent. <laughs> the author was saying, no, no. That's not what life's about. Life is not about being a good person. That, that's a good struggle for other people, not for a Jew. For a Jew, the struggle of life is between being godly and human. Between being human or beyond human. Between serving yourself or between living a life which is in service of God. Between indulging yourself or between indulging your purpose. The author says life is not about being good and okay and neutral. Life is about being holy. It's not enough that your breakfast was okay. What's wrong with breakfast? <laughs> just, just eating a, a bowl of cereal, a bowl of cornflakes. Kellogg's cornflakes is kosher, you know. Yathrib says, no, life for a Jew, the goal of life is not about being okay. It's not about not being a terrorist. <laughs> life is about being holy, about transcending yourself, about living a life from the perspective of your soul. We can't just be okay. We can't just be good. We have to be holy. That's, that's the life of a Jew. That's what's expected of us. That's the work of a Jew. For a non-Jew, they're being good. What God expects from a non-Jew is simply to be a good person. Be a good person, don't get into trouble, be a decent human being, and they are perfect. But for a Jew, that's not close to enough. We're here to be holy. We're here to make the world holy. We're on a much more sacred mission, on a more exalted mission. And this whole study of klipa and how we interact with people really drives home that concept. Klipa snoga is not good enough. We have to make everything holy. And now that we have all this information, we've learned about the godly soul, about the animal soul, about the, about the uh, structure of these souls, and about what life is all about. It's about making things holy. It's about living a holy life. Now we have officially set the stage. And we are ready to start applying all these teaches, teachings to practical life, to daily life, applying them to our struggles. And chapter nine starts introducing us to that world. Till now is all in theory. Let's not talk in practice. Let's see about what it looks like when the animal soul and the godly soul, <laughs> what day-to-day -day life looks like with a godly soul and an animal soul and the struggles between them and how we navigate those struggles. That's coming up in chapter nine. So, okay. So, dear friends, with that, we conclude tonight. I want to thank you all for joining. Here's our schedule. You ready for our schedule? We are going to take a little break for the next three weeks. Monday the 19th, Monday the 26th, and December 2nd, we will not be having Tanya class. December 9th, Tanya resumes, and we're on to the next part of Tanya. And with that, I want to thank you all. Have a wonderful evening, dear friends. Thank you, as always, for joining. Have a wonderful Hanukkah, a freilichen Hanukkah, a joyous Hanukkah. It's, a, it's a, such a beautiful time of year. And we'll see you, uh, we'll see you very soon, God willing. We'll be in touch.